salutations. Welcome to episode 17 of the Talent Crush Chat Show podcast, the show where we talk about the art and culture that we enjoy and sometimes get to talk to the people who make it. My name is Christopher Royce, and I'm a writer who wrote almost 10,000 words this week. <laughs> My name is Stevie Jackson. I'm an actress, writer, producer. Uh, I did not write 10,000 words this week. Well, that's tragic. You should I guess know what so. this feels like. <laughs> <laughs> I did do a lot of reading this week, if that helps. I That does help. <laughs> I finished one book. Well, I finished one book entirely, and I finished... I finished one book, then I read a whole other book all in the space of one week, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, take that, books. So I didn't I didn't read two full books this week, but I read, like, a book and a quarter? Do you want to tell us about these mystery books? Sure, yeah, okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I read... They're both uh, excellent. They're very different. I read uh, first a memoir called Educated by Tara Westover. Um, okay. It is the story of her childhood she was raised by survivalist mormons in rural idaho that's scary she never went to school her parents did not believe in medical care and i i feel like i should stress that that is not normal in mormon culture most mormons go to the doctor so and and she's very clear that this is not a memoir about mormonism specifically because her family's practice of what they called mormonism is not at all mainstream um there there was no um plural marriage going on but they had Mm -hmm. their own beliefs and issues and so she did not set foot in a classroom of any kind until she was 17 years old when she started college at byu and it is Fascinating, And it also sounds like something that might have happened, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah. This girl was born in 1986. And so every once in a while in the book, because what she's talking about and and living as they did without much media, although they had a TV on and off and sometimes they had a phone and sometimes they didn't have a phone, I would sort of find it jarring when she would refer to wearing jeans or say you know and then in 1995 and i would think wait a minute 1995 that was the modern world i was 17 years old that's not a typo that's not supposed to be 1895 i mean she's in her early 30s now it's it's fascinating um so she went to university promptly embarrassed herself in class by not knowing what the holocaust was um yeah oof indeed um you know, was not a person who was necessarily accustomed to showering regularly and had some trouble living with roommates because she'd only ever lived with her family. Yeah. And yet, in the end, she not only managed to get her BA, but she went on um, and did a master's and a PhD. She studied at Cambridge, and I do not mean Harvard and Boston, I mean actual <laughs> Cambridge in the UK, where she now still lives. Uh, she was a visiting Ooh. fellow at Harvard. Crimson um, burn. <laughs> well, just, you know, people who are trying to be sort of, they say Cambridge instead of Harvard. And, you know, uh-huh. no, she she was actually at Cambridge in the UK. Uh, so she went on to get her PhD and, and build a life for herself outside of what she grew up in. Um, while not fully losing touch with her family, although her parents really don't talk to her. So fascinating, yeah. fascinating memoir. And for, for all that I've just told, that doesn't begin to spoil it. There's so much in there. It's incredible. Um, and then I read Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple, which has been okay. made into a movie starring Kate Blanchett that comes out in a couple of weeks. So I intend to see oh, wow. that, but I wanted to read the book first. Um, mm-hmm. It's largely kind of a mother-daughter story. 
Um, but it is overall, it is the story of Bernadette Fox and her, I don't want to spoil anything about it, but her, <laughs> her unusual life. Um, okay. and it's, uh, as my friend Julia put it, it is bonkers <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's, it's bonkers and it's great fun and, uh, high, high recommend. Well, great. Yeah. Uh, I, I have been mostly, I have been mostly transcribing things that I have handwritten. Okay. So the 10,000 word is not, I mean, I hesitate to say it's not as impressive as it sounds because I am proud of it as an accomplishment. But mm -hmm. as you and I have talked about off the mic, uh, I have a lot of downtime in my days sometimes. And so I will handwrite things on a little steno pad. Mm -hmm. And then I have to subsequently go through those handwritten notes and type them up. So you and wrote so 20,000 words. Doing. <laughs> well, sort of, yeah. You wrote 10,000 words twice. <laughs> I wrote roughly 10,000 words worth of worthless scribbles and then made them into words later. Okay. Still good. <laughs> Still good. Still good. Still but, very good. Uh, um, yes. Working on this giant project that will not see the light of day for many years, but it's still nice to make some progress on it because it's uh, otherwise you just drown in giant, giant projects. Awesome. Um, I, I feel like I need to... Uh, and not so humble brag about the fact that honestly Charlotte <laughs> has been nominated for three awards at the Austin Revolution oh, right. Film yes. Festival. That happened mm -hmm. within the last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we have been nominated for Best Series. We have been nominated for Best Director for my partner Joan, so yay Joan. And yay. Uh, I have a nomination for Actress. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I do. So... <laughs> That's that's felt pretty good, especially uh, coming as it did at the same time that we were rejected from several other film festivals that we wanted to go to. Nice. So are you going to get to like go to Texas and sit at a fancy awards dinner? No, uh, I am not. Neither of us is actually. The timing is <laughs> timing is bad. Uh, Joan is participating in a wedding that weekend. And that is, uh, I work, my day job, for those who may not realize, is in education. And so that is the very beginning of our term. <laughs> oh, is it? I can't really be away. It's, it's in September, uh, early September. So I really can't be away. And, uh, and also, flights to Texas are expensive. Yeah. I, I could go so. to L.A. and back twice for what, what I have to pay to go to Texas. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't think it's to be... Um, the, I have weirdly I have two passes because uh, because I'm a nominated actor I have an actor pass mm -hmm. that is non-transferable I also oh. have a filmmaker pass that is transferable that I can give to another member of my team so I'm I'm working on who I can give that to I've I've been sort of offering it to members of the team and uh, so far no one has been able to go <laughs> so yeah. but I, I hope it won't go to waste I hope that that somebody will be able to take it so Hey, if you're listening to this and you worked on Honestly Charlotte, <laughs> give me a call. I might still have it when this comes out. <laughs> well, I hope uh, I hope you win. Thank you. It's All an honor awards. just to be nominated. Of course it is. Uh, I didn't mean that sarcastically, but it sounded like I said it sarcastically. No, 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 not at all. And I, I was being mildly sarcastic with it's an honor just to be nominated. But it, <laughs> it is. It, it is truly an honor just to be considered. So. Yeah, I do feel like there's just sort of statistically like being chosen as one of a small group of people amongst thousands and thousands of projects versus being chosen the one of five. Mm -hmm. Like there the nomination is like almost a bigger 
um, distinction. It's it's rather than being the winner from the nominees. Yeah, and even sense. just being, I mean, several people that that we know were recently in consideration for Emmy nominations, and even that, yeah. even just being considered for a nomination at that level is huge. So yeah, I I mean, I think I think it sort of it the how how amazing it is sort of multiplies with the level of the award so the bigger the award the sure, more sure, sure. you know the more submissions the more people not even getting submitted the more so yeah. so yeah it is as i said to one of our friends on facebook it's an honor <laughs> just to be almost nominated in that case <laughs> like just to get submitted is enormous yeah yeah. And uh, as, again, looping back to the idea of trying to make incremental progress, just mm -hmm. finishing things is an yes, accomplishment. Yes, <laughs> that is true. Just finishing things sometimes. Sometimes just starting the thing. Yeah, also. these are things as creative people and, like, would-be creative professionals that I feel like is really good for us to keep in mind as much mm -hmm. as possible. Just just begin things, just work on things, just finish things. Well, and, and, it, and try not to think too far down the road about like accolades and whatnot. Oh yeah, uh, awards are nice, but they're not the reason for doing it. And and as an actor, my job is really auditioning. Like that's yeah. that's the job of a professional actor is we audition, and every once in a while we get the part, and then we get to do the next part of the work. But mm -hmm. most of what we do is audition, and then there's a whole process that I don't even see that my agent takes care of, of submitting me for auditions. So yeah. every time I get in the room, I've beaten out hundreds of people just to be one of the, say, you know, 10 people who even get a shot at going in the room and doing it. Um, so even, even that is a success, and I don't know if people outside the industry know that, and I know it's something newer actors struggle with. Yeah. Um, but if you're auditioning regularly, which I'm grateful to say I am, thanks to my amazing agent, um, <laughs> even that is just a victory. Like if you're routinely auditioning in, in Canada, of course, these numbers would be low for a place like L.A. But in Vancouver, sure. if you're routinely auditioning like twice a week, um, you're you're doing pretty well. Yeah. yeah, there should. I'm just thinking about this. Probably somebody else has thought about it either in joke form or sincerely. But should there be uh, awards for auditions? <laughs> No, because most of us don't ever want our auditions to see the light of day. There was a time for a while, I think it stopped, but for a while there were all these old audition tapes being released oh, online really? on YouTube. And, and I really started to think, like, I don't know how I feel about this. Because it's one thing if it's the tape of the audition that, that got you the role. Yeah, exactly. But if you're somebody else who auditioned for that and didn't get it, and all, I mean, it is... It's useful in one way, because I think there's a misconception that if if you audition for something and don't get it, it's because you weren't good enough. Yeah. And that's completely false, because there are a million factors that go into casting. And mm -hmm. often, if, you know, if you've ever sat on the other side of the audition table and, and actually run auditions, which I have, most people do a great job. You know, you get one person who comes in and you're like, what was that that I just watched? Um, and often there are <laughs> one or two who come in and they're amazing, but they're... Sometimes someone is amazing, but they're not right for the part anyway. Yeah, like, it's exactly. not even the person who gives the... Weirdly, it's not the person who gives the best audition who necessarily gets the part. And in the best of all possible worlds, it is. But then there are other factors. So you might give a really strong audition, but if you're a woman and you're two inches taller than the male lead, guess what? Yeah. They're not going to hire you, and it doesn't matter how good you were that day. So those are the pieces that people don't know. And then there's just other stuff like, are you available? Are you in town? Did you book something else first? Are you 
too blonde or not blonde enough or <laughs> do you look too much like the director's ex-wife or do you look so much I hate that these are real criteria but they're real like do you look so much like the the person you're playing opposite that you could be siblings in which case you look too much alike to play lovers <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. you know so there's so much that goes into it and um, I mean one of the best things I think actors can do is find a way to get on the other side of the audition table Um, whether that's making your own short film or whatever and casting it or whether that's helping out a friend who's directing something or becoming a reader for a casting director because Mm -hmm. there there are that is a job Um, anything like that will will show you very quickly that it's not about how good you are but at the same time I don't (laughs) know that I want all of and it's not no one's interested in my old auditions but I don't know that I would want my (laughs) my audition tapes out there because even I haven't seen them yeah you know I don't the only time I get to see my own auditions is if I do what's called a self-tape self-tape yeah yeah which means for the listener I know you know this but for the listener what that Uh is is instead of going into a casting session and doing it in front of a casting director they send me the sides I get somebody with a camera to to film me doing it um Mm. I can self-tape entirely but usually you at least need a reader so you need someone to read the other part and it helps if they can set up the camera. I mean, I have set up a camera and just taped myself, but it's very stressful because you can't, you can't make sure that you're in frame and in focus while you're doing it. Um, so usually you go, there, there are lots of actors whose side business is helping other actors with self-tapes. So you go and you pay yeah. somebody for an hour to do this with you. And, and that's the only time I get to see my own auditions because I get a copy. <laughs> like a copy goes to my agent and a copy comes to me and then I get to see them. Um, but otherwise, no, they're just lost to time and I, I've never seen them. And I assume they get erased now that everything's digital. Like I just assume that they dump them once they've cast the thing, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I would think so. But then again, like storage is so cheap, relatively speaking. And a few minutes of video is maybe only a few dozen megabytes. Maybe some casting assistant just holds on to stuff in case they want you in the future for something else. They can refer back to it. Well, I think that's what they use the headshot and resume for because the other thing about those videos is you'd have hundreds of them a day. Like, you're never going back through those, I don't think. Um, I mean, if you had someone really exciting come in an audition, maybe. Like, you might hang on Mm -hmm. to the odd one, but I would think that 95% of them, you'd be like, I don't need to see 46 people try to sell me soap. I think I'm just going to delete these. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, when you're talking about commercial auditions, 100% that makes sense that they would just blow those away as soon as they'd cast somebody. episodic television, like, these all these people came in and did the same two lines we cast that person we've got our backup for like we don't ever need to watch this again yeah when you think about those roles of like a law and order episode or something where you like you go in to talk to the bartender and like oh yeah she was here around 8 30 she left with a guy whatever like i don't need 12 you don't need to say almost the same telling exactly same and for like yeah unless there was something special or like somebody you recognize from something else or yeah i bet i bet 99 percent of audition reels get dumped because if if there is something where you're like oh that person was really remarkable like then you might you just make a note (laughs) (laughs) and then you know three years later who was that guy who came in for that thing and we didn't use him but he was really good i think he might be right for this who was that guy what was his name Mm -hmm. james you know, and then exactly. you go back to your notes and find them. But I think, yeah. Well, just to plug one of our previous episodes, I think we had a really interesting conversation with Courtney mm-hmm. about this kind of stuff. I think that was episode yeah, nine. Yeah, we did. 
Oh, it was uh, it was early on. I'm pretty sure it was nine. I think was it's it nine? Okay. Millennial. Courtney Dela. Yeah, Reluctant Everybody Millennial. Go check it out if you haven't. Go, go find our episode called Reluctant Millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, we had quite a talk about casting and auditioning and stuff, yeah. 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 Uh, what else is going on? Um, well, at, at the risk of a hard segue, um, <laughs> should we tell the folks what our topic is today? Are you feeling a hard segue coming on? I'm feeling a hard segue coming on. <laughs> Watch out! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we talked about this, uh, just the two of us, not without the microphones. Wait, mm-hmm. that's too many. Without the microphones. Yes, that uh, was double negative there for a second. <laughs> I was working towards a triple negative to equal it out, but it didn't Perfect. Uh, manifest. <laughs> that wasn't uh, not a double negative. Nope, that was quadruple. <laughs> God damn it. All right, go ahead. <laughs> uh, hard segue into a trip down the stairs. <laughs> um, we had spoken, just the two of us personally, about doing an episode about the television show The Office, and mm-hmm. not just the one you're thinking of, but the other one, too. Yes, the it television show. It doesn't matter which one you're thinking of, because <laughs> there's two versions, and we're going to talk about both of them. That's right, we are. Um, in, in our quest to cover all things Mike Schur, <laughs> um, we have gotten to one of the earlier pieces of his work that we've left for last for some reason. Um, I guess because it, this one isn't one that he created, and um, it's not as identified with. I would no, say no, no. But he was he was a big part of it, and so yeah, we thought we would get. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that sentence. We thought we would talk about the office, <laughs> the offices, words. both the offices. <laughs> words, yeah, words, eventually, words. Eventually, we're gonna try to call his parents and get any like home movies from him when he was a kid. <laughs> Just our unending quest to get Mike Shore on the podcast without on, ever actually asking him to be on the podcast. I, I love this on an audio podcast. We're gonna try to show home video. This is gonna go great. Well, no, but we would we would talk about them. We're not oh, showing boy. the Office episodes or the Good Place episodes. It's all just commentary. I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, well, should we get into it? <laughs> I think so. Cue right. the music. <laughs> covered thoroughly in the intro uh <laughs> our segment today is going to be on the offices um chris do you want to give the good folks at home who i'm sure have seen at least the american version of the office probably 16 times but for <laughs> for the sake of setup do you want to give them just a little bit of background yeah um i had a ridiculously long version of an intro and i read it to stevie and she's like we don't need a five minute monologue at the head of our thing stupid i, I uh, did not say stupid i did not say that i just no, said i thought not. probably the listeners knew a lot of that and had seen the show it was implied i said it in uh, i swear <laughs> i promise so for those who maybe have forgotten or never knew, the original British series was created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchants, who also co-wrote and co-directed every episode. Uh, it ran for two six-season series in 2001 and 2002 on the BBC, and then they had a two-part Christmas special series finale in two, 2003. Blah. Reading words. Uh, <laughs> words, the words, American words. Version, <laughs> words, words, words. That's going to be the title of this episode. It is. I, you know what? I saw Hamlet yesterday, and at one point he's asked, what are you reading? And he's like, words. Words, words. <laughs> and now it's stuck in my brain. 
<laughs> okay, well, I have one more pre-planned sentence, and then we will get to the unplanned part. Go for it. Let's hear it. The American adaptation of The Office was created by Greg Daniels. It ran for nine seasons from 2005 to 2013. And now we're done with the reading part. It sure did. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Ooh. Just, just to see. Because I have, I, have I have strong feelings on this, but do you have you a know. preference between the original British version and the American version? I do. And, and what is it? The, the short answer is I like the U.S. version better. So do I. But I think that I, I think that we should stipulate sort of right at the top that this is one of the like dumb competitive things that permeates pop culture and especially internet pop culture where mm, there has yeah. to be a winner. And if you like one more than the other, then the people who disagree with you are garbage trash who should die in a fire. And yeah, I just want no. to repudiate that attitude as Me too. strongly as possible. Yeah. Don't they, fight over this guys. They're both <laughs> really well done, but mm -hmm. I personally have an aversion to the sort of cringefulness that, Gervais and Merchant are actually really good at and that's mm -hmm. why I don't enjoy watching that show as much is because it's done really well but in a style that like in a hackles racing way I just don't enjoy yeah I've, I found the same thing and I admit I didn't quite make it all the way through the second season before we had to record I didn't make it to the Christmas specials and I, yeah. I, I am a completist I will finish I just literally <laughs> ran out of time um, but yeah I find like you said they're really really good at the cringy thing mm -hmm. and I find it very uncomfortable um, and and so it gets hard to watch. And then the the other thing that I found with it, and I think this might actually be a bit of a gender thing, is the okay. women on that show don't have a ton to do. Yes. Even even the one sort of lead woman we have, uh, Lucy Davis as Dawn, mm -hmm. it just doesn't have nearly as much to do on the show as the men do. So it, at a certain point, it's just a lot of dudes talking to each other. Yeah. Often about sort of dude stuff and sexist stuff because, and this is, uh, I, again, I want to be clear because we don't want people starting fights. Um, <laughs> it's very clear to me that David Brent, the character, is written that way, and that is mm -hmm. not necessarily Ricky Gervais' feelings, and I don't want those two people getting conflated. But yes. David Brent is an incredibly sexist character in a way that even Michael Scott of the American office is not. And it gets tough to watch and listen to as a woman. Yeah, um, and see, I, this is one of the things that I was really interested to talk to you about mm -hmm. was the show's voice versus the character's voice and mm -hmm. taking those two sort of the nominal lead characters of mm -hmm. each respective series. Yeah, I feel that as the audience, we're supposed to think poorly of David Brent. We're I think you're right, think yes. He's terrible. Mm -hmm. But when you watch the American version, Michael Scott is not written or performed in the same way to mm -hmm. my eye. I think the show is really ambivalent, especially in the first couple years. I think that it has, and I'm going to invoke a phrase that I never would use in life, but a love the sinner, hate the sin sort of mentality, where we're supposed to think Michael is like a good guy with a good heart, mm -hmm. but is fundamentally broken in especially the way he expresses himself. Yes, and I, I think that was probably a choice somewhere mm -hmm. that was made by the creators if we want to call them that of the american office creator in this sense yeah it's a little uncomfortable yeah. to me because of course ricky gervais and stephen martin created it yeah. um and they the creators of this version the recreators the adapters <laughs> uh 
Um, I'm but, comfortable with recreators. <laughs> okay, but yeah, the the American creators of the American version, the guys who got that show off the ground. Um, I think that must have been a choice that they made somewhere yeah. to to soften the. I can't believe I get to apply this term to a male character. The unlikableness. <laughs> yeah, no, of that's David exactly Brent, what it is. and to this make yeah to make Michael Scott um, somebody that was more likable somebody that was Mm -hmm. lovable in a lot of ways and and i think part of it is michael scott even at his worst Mm -hmm. is generally well-meaning um the the if if i can get into actor speak for a moment here hit me (laughs) the core of michael scott's character the thing he wants the his whole raison d'etre the whole what he is Mm -hmm. is a guy who desperately wants love. Uh-huh. His whole world is somebody love me, somebody love me, somebody love me. Friend. And and uh, yeah, be my friend, date me, laugh mm-hmm. at my joke, anything so that I know I'm a valuable person. Uh-huh. So everything he does is even even some of the terrible stuff he does like in the pilot when he pretends to fire Pam. Yeah. I think he thinks she's honestly going to find that funny. When he's also doing it to get in with the new temp, Ryan, yeah, by BJ Novak. Yeah. Like, okay, I want the temp to like me because yeah. I perceive him strangely as higher status than me. Very strangely. And so, <laughs> and so I'm going to do this thing, and then when it's revealed that it was joke, everybody will be like bonded together in comedy harmony. Or right. And he's so short-sighted that he can't see that Pam won't react that way. But any normal person would be like, that's a horrible thing to do to somebody. Of course she's going to cry. You're going to accuse her of stealing when yeah. you know full well she hasn't um and and what's interesting about that scene and we talked about this off mic but for the benefit of the listener the (laughs) two the two pilots are virtually identical um it is the exact same plot the dialogue is very similar except of course you know the britishisms have been taken out for the american like it's clearly been rewritten in these characters voices but it's the same Uh uh i'm a sales rep which means that my job is to speak to clients on the phone my job is to speak to clients um, on the phone. About uh, quantity and type of paper. About uh, quantities and uh, type of copier paper. Whether we can supply it with them. You know, uh, whether we can supply it to them. And whether they can pay for it. Whether they can uh, pay for it and... um, and I'm, I'm boring, boring myself, myself just talking about, about this. But when David Brent does it to Dawn, it's not... I, it doesn't have the same tone. Like, it's well, just as it's... bad for her as it is for Pam, but Michael yeah. Scott and David Brent are more different than you might expect them to be, I guess. I think that part of that is... And again, maybe this is an actor-speak thing that I don't have the experience to really put the right words to but Mm -hmm. i think steve carell is bringing like a childlike quality to that character yes where he seems like underdeveloped david brent is more like almost pathological or like predatory yep in his the way he deals with people and so you don't see like this sort of fundamental harmlessness that michael scott has a hundred percent agree with that okay yeah yeah there's no childlike quality to david brent there's sort of at times there's like a (laughs) <laughs> my apologies to all teenage boys but there's like a gross <laughs> teenage boy element to him at some time at some point reasonable 
but he doesn't have um he's mean-spirited in a way that Michael yeah. Scott isn't. Even when Michael does something that is ostensibly mean, like the example of firing Pam, I don't yeah. think it ever comes from a mean-spirited place. Whereas David Brent seems to me more mean-spirited. And I think that that's in those two performances where you, like watching Ricky Gervais, there's something about that character where maybe, maybe again, maybe it's just me, but I almost feel like, well, you should know better. But Michael mm-hmm. Scott seems like, oh, well, he just doesn't know better. Of course you don't know better. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're, like, you're a bit of a dumb dumb, Michael Scott. One of them was raised on a farm, or like is a puppy that was transmogrified into human form. Yeah, like, he does have a puppy quality. When you look at all the like racism and the sexism and like the the sequences that amp up into screaming fights or violence or you know the the very few times that the show does let something go completely out of control rather than mm-hmm. just stay in that like fun awkward zone, it's always it it's. Those, those two shows get very different in those ends because Michael's like, whoa, like, dude, I, we need to sit down and have a talk about why what you said was wrong. Yeah. With David Brand, it's more like watching that character in 2019, there's no way that that person in the real world would survive in his job through the events of the pilot. Oh, God, he'd be fired so fast. Yes. <laughs> so fast. But I think to... to uh, it, We do nothing if not call out our segues... To segue into a discussion of a different character, I think yeah. some of the some of the sort of mean spiritedness that was taken away from Michael Scott, I feel like was given to Dwight Schrute. Yes, absolutely. In a and way I think for the that benefit. his counterpart doesn't seem to have it. Mm-hmm. Like his counterpart in the British version, Gareth, seems a little dopier to me. Yeah, and like almost. Um... Yeah, because we both rewatched a bunch of this recently, mm-hmm. and I, I, I was struck by the way that the Tim and Don characters fuck with the Gareth Keenan character is a little bit more predatory in some mm-hmm. places. A little rather bit, yeah. Than like when you watch Jim mess with Dwight, he's mm-hmm. doing it much more like in reaction. Like yes. there's this, and and I think it's partially again the performance and the storytelling both, but mm-hmm. there seems to be a thing where. Like, Dwight is terrible, 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 terrible up until a point, and then Jim responds. Yes. Whereas Tim just sort of arbitrarily decided Gareth was terrible, and their their relationship is almost more fraternal from the very beginning, where they're so, sort of giving and taking in equal measure. That is how it feels, because um, if, if you think about the stapler and jello bit... Yeah, exactly. Um, in the British version, it feels unprovoked... Yeah. It feels like Tim just put Gareth's stapler in Jello for no reason. Mm-hmm. And even Kinda. though we don't see it being provoked, particularly in the American pilot, in my memory, mm-hmm. it feels no. a little more like, well, this has been going on a while and Dwight had it coming. Well, and it's also in the line of dialogue. I don't remember the UK version as much because I haven't watched it as much, but mm-hmm. the line in the American version is, Jim put my stuff in jello again. Again, yes. This is so clearly this has happened, happened before. multiple times. It's an ongoing thing. Maybe that was the line in the UK version. I just, I just don't remember. But there's a very clear sense of like, oh, this old thing again. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think maybe it, there wasn't again in the UK version. Um, we're, we're definitely picking all the nits. Yeah, we'd have to go back and look. Um <laughs> But I, I also feel like I'm guessing, and th- it's hard to, because this, of course, is, there's no way to talk about this show that isn't in retrospect anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did see the pilot the first time it aired in 2005, but unfortunately that was 14 <laughs> years ago and I don't remember my exact reaction. Um, yeah. But having watched it again not that long ago, in in retrospect, it feels like that had sort of escalated to the Jello thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And because we see their rivalry continue and escalate through so much of the rest of the series. Also, yeah. though... Putting someone's stapler in jello, as retaliation goes, is relatively harmless. It's clever. It takes some right? forethought and some work. Like, he had to make jello. And yeah, not only did he have to make benign. jello, like, he either he took that stapler home, uh-huh. or he made jello in the office. Either way, making jello takes a few hours. It has to set. So, this, yeah. like, he did it overnight or something. Um, but it's relatively harmless. You know, you can take the stapler out of Jello and it will be just fine. So <laughs> it'll be a little sticky. <laughs> yeah, but you wash it off. It'll be fine. It's sort of, it's pretty harmless. Mm-hmm. Most of Jim's pranks are, are harmless. I find. Yeah. Although I have to say that to sort of jump ahead, I guess mm-hmm. one of my favorite episodes is the season two episode. I think it's called conflict resolution mm-hmm. where they go through all the complaints and you hear <laughs> all the things that Jim has done to Dwight. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to write down for myself here. There's probably a YouTube clip of all of the pranks mm-hmm. getting listed out. And uh, that's just one of my favorite where they talk about all of the things that he has done. Yeah. Um, I think my, we'll link to that. The one, the one that's my favorite that we never actually saw is uh, I think the quote is uh, today I hit myself in the fo- in the head with the phone. I suspect Jim Halpert. And then you cut <laughs> to John Kaczynski's one on one. And he says, oh, yeah, uh, what I did with that is I just put more and more nickels into it <laughs> until I got used to the weight. And then I took them all out. Yes, that was <laughs> a good like, one. I feel like that only works as a described thing because mm-hmm. if you just had like a cold open where Rain Wilson picks up the phone and smashes himself in the face with it, yeah, it would somehow not be as funny as me imagining that yeah. happening. Well, because you can't, what you can't do is show the slow buildup of all these nickels and exactly. then the removal of the, like it. Yeah, it only works like you said. It's not a visual uh-huh. joke, but it works when he tells it. I think my and, favorite thing that we ever saw Jim do was the time that he uh, replaced Dwight's desk with cardboard and wrapped it all in Christmas paper. Yep. Like to the point that he did the chair and Mm -hmm. you know the the laptop the computer screen like he made Mm -hmm. cardboard shapes of all the things that would be on Dwight's desk and then carefully wrapped everything Mm -hmm. in in Christmas wrap and set it all up so we don't see him do that but what we see is that sitting there and then Dwight comes to sit down and the whole thing just collapses. Yep. And that's my favorite prank, I think. That was pretty the good. The vending machine one was also really good. Um, but I think the other favorite that I have was one that I actually saw a uh, was in a psychology class in college and a professor, a real professor at a university, mm-hmm. showed this clip to uh, demonstrate operant conditioning, mm-hmm. which was the restarting the computer to hand Dwight Altoids. You know, remember this prank? <laughs> I do. So every time he turns on the computer, it gets the bong, and yep. then he hands him a mint. Mm-hmm. And eventually he restarts his computer and doesn't, and Dwight reaches, Dwight reaches out. out for the mint. Yeah. And Jim goes, what? Yeah. And, and Dwight <laughs> says, oh, my mouth feels so gross all of a sudden. <laughs> And it's just very it's a perfect example of like a Pavlovian experiment. Yeah, Dwight is Pavlov's human. <laughs> and I feel like there's I don't know who wrote that episode, but I do feel like there's some DNA in that sequence shared with 
a lot of other sort of Mike Shore projects that we've talked about before, which is sort of the smartest, dumbest show on television kind mm-hmm. of thing, to quote Mark Evan Jackson yes. talking about the good place. It's like, yes, we are we are going to read things and we are going to know things and then we're going to use them for mm-hmm. just absolute silliness. Yes. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think I like about the American office, and it, I, I don't want to put them in competition, but the the Tim and Don romance did mm-hmm. not have time to go as far because the, the yeah. British office is so short. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas one of the threads that flows through all of the American office is we get to watch Jim and Pam fall in love. Yeah. We watch their whole romance. We watch them get married. We watch them have two kids. We watch them almost split up. Like there's a whole life arc that happens over the course of those nine yeah. years. And, and that's, that's one that's of my one favorite thing parts of it. Say, Oh, sorry to interrupt. That's one thing that I would credit the back half of the Office, U.S. Office series mm-hmm. with, is like not a lot of shows, especially sitcoms, show like successful relationships where yeah. people like work through their problems, like mm-hmm. have problems, and it like on TV mostly if there's a problem, it's somebody cheating, and yep. then they like have to decide whether or not to break up, and that's pretty much all there is. Mm-hmm. But they like actually went into really like specific difficult to talk about things and like not in an after school special way but the I guess the show sort of displayed some maturity it did because we hardly ever see the will they won't they couple get together yeah. in the middle and that's what yes. happens in this show is I, th- I think that show ran longer than it was ever intended to meaning Probably. they strung out the Jim and Pam romance for about as long as you reasonably could Yeah, and at a certain point you had to will they or won't they and so they did you know they mm-hmm. and they got married and we had that wedding but that wedding happens in like season five or something i think it um, might even be it yeah, might even no, be four is it yeah. five yeah mm-hmm. so they and that's the middle of the show although they wouldn't have known at that point that they were going to go to season nine but they, i think exactly. they had they were so popular they had a good idea that they weren't getting canceled anytime soon Correct. um so they you know then they had to to do the happily ever after like what does it look like now that Pam and Jim are, are officially not just a couple but married yeah. now, now what and usually we don't get the now what and so yeah we and in the later seasons we see them struggle with Jim having an opportunity outside of Dunder Mifflin but it's out of town and how are they going to manage that mm-hmm. when Pam's happy where she is and and we saw them, like you said, display some maturity and get into actual adult problems that would really happen in a marriage where two people are pursuing yeah. careers and one of them has an opportunity. That happens to people. And they're talking about, like, you know, being honest with each other and, mm-hmm. like, some really, like, more adult themes in the more traditional <laughs> use of that term. Yeah. Rather than just sort of the silly stuff of, you know, who left the toothpaste cap off the tube or whatever. Like it's I don't think they ever talk about toothpaste. <laughs> sure, but I, I feel like there are sort of tropes yeah. in couples. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean like that's that's a really good observation of they essentially let them get married in what ended up being the middle of the run. Mm-hmm. But then they sort of keep telling that story. Because I feel like the easy Hollywood answer for that is, oh well we let these characters get married because the actors wanted off the show and their contracts were expiring. Right. And so, so they then get they married move away. Leave. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they don't. They stay, and we get to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. And then one of the most 
Well, this is jumping a bit to the end, and I'm sure we'll come back. But one one of the most yeah. interesting moments of the show was when they had to deal with Michael Scott's departure because Steve Carell did want off the show. Yeah. Um, and so he left in season seven, and then they had to go on for two more years. And yeah. there was question at the time I remember of like, will this show survive? Who's and gonna carry the show? Well, yeah, like, can it can it survive without its original star? And it was interesting yeah. to see that it could. And I think, I think it worked because mm-hmm. by that point, they had such a strong ensemble yes. that it, even though it was a, essentially at the beginning, it was a show about Michael Scott and all the people who worked at this company. But it was Michael Scott and his mm-hmm. paper pals and, <laughs> and his merry men. <laughs> yeah, and then it became about just the paper pals. And he was one of them. And so by the time he left, I think the ensemble was strong enough and we loved all these characters so much. Because one of the the issues with the British office for me, and again, it's partly just the fact that it was such a short run, is Mm -hmm. so many of the supporting characters barely exist. They're very underdeveloped. And their counterparts in the American office, if you watch the first season, are also not super they're more developed because even even in one season that show had more episodes total than the absolutely original did but they they developed those characters so much more and so we have what we what we don't have in the british office is we don't have kevin and angela and stanley and meredith and phyllis and creed and all these other people who can carry their own storylines yeah, because there are, like, full-on A stories that don't involve, like, the core four cast members from the original season. Exactly. Once you get deeper into the show. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I would say that essentially the person who replaced Steve Carell is the family of The Office. You know, like, it becomes yeah. more, much more of an ensemble animal. You know, mm-hmm. they, you can't point to any one cast member and say, oh, that's the protagonist of the show now. Like, they really did build it yeah. to be a group animal. I mean, I think Ed Helms kind of was for a bit. because kind they sort of? They sort of, it was almost like they replaced Michael by not replacing Michael because they cycled through so many people. Yeah. Um, and, like, high-profile guest stars. And, yeah. You know, stuff like that. But, yeah. I mean, Ed Helms had been on this show since season three. So mm-hmm. he didn't come in at that point. No, but he took over Michael's job. Yeah. And absolutely. with it sort of took over that role. But he was still mm-hmm. Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then he went away and Nellie replaced him, weirdly. And uh, I'm sorry about the <laughs> motorcycle noise. Um, it's very warm here today, listeners. My windows are open and a very noisy motorcycle just went by. I apologize. We will not be cutting that out because it happened while I was talking. Uh, Sorry about the noise. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I think they sort of faked us out a bit with, um, oh, my God, I can't remember his name. Which who? Um, He was on SNL. The tall guy with the curly hair. Will Ferrell. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Will, they faked us out with Will Ferrell coming in as Michael was leaving and like, oh, he's going to sort of take over the lead. And then that is not what happened. Yes. That was very much a fake out. Yeah. And then it sort of became Ed Helms kind of, but then I think he left to do one of the hangover movies or something. And so they had to write him out for that. And yeah, I don't remember scheduling, but it, it, yeah, it essentially became like, okay, we're going to take the attention that you paid to this one character Mm -hmm. and just sort of slice it up. Yeah. And put it on all of these other characters. And we're also going to bring in, you know, Kathy Bates and this other sort of cast yes. of characters as you push through. And mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's hard to say whether a show ends before or after it needs to because so many of those decisions are not made artistically, they're made financially. Yes. But I do think that, like, the sort of core storyline of that series you know, it, it pays off at different points depending on which of the characters are your favorites. Yeah, but I, I think it had pretty well... Yeah. I mean, I think you could have ended that show two years before you did. Um, Probably. Which is not to say that there's anything wrong with the final two seasons. Yeah. Um, they're great fun. I just think you, if it were Michael Scott's story, then it mm-hmm. should have ended when he left. Um, yeah. What's interesting is they did bring him back for the finale, and he says all of two lines. Yeah, he has, like, several minutes of screen time in that last episode mm-hmm. and has... He barely one, talks. Like, direct to camera, and yeah, he's... Uh, I don't know if he's getting paid by the word, but it sure feels that <laughs> way. I, I'm pretty sure he would have been paid by the episode. <laughs> no, of course, of yeah. course. But it, uh, it has that sense. But I actually mm-hmm. thought... Because I watched... When we talked about doing this a couple months ago, I watched through season four which i feel like is sort of the core of my the Mm -hmm. parts of the show that i love and then i went and jumped forward and watched the last two or three episodes where the the actual documentary supposedly comes out yes whole mockumentary style the show supposedly was for something Mm -hmm. and they do the big q a and then they have the wedding sequence yeah and like i actually thought that that was a really lovely hour of television that Mm -hmm. finale Oh, like yeah, they, I think they did a nice they job do of wrap it. up a lot of fun stuff and you get to see like an actual resolution to the Michael storyline, which is he mm-hmm. gets the, you know, whatever it is, baseball team of kids that he wants. Yeah. And a life with Holly and all that stuff, which is, you know, it's just nice. Like, oh, yeah. It's I think it I think they ended it in a lovely place. I really do. Um, yeah. I, and since since I've mentioned a few things that I think work better in the American version, I will say the documentary <laughs> conceit does work a little better with the shorter seasons of the British version. Oh, really? Because, okay, tell me more about that. Well, I think it's... and it, like It came to the point where they started referencing it within the world of the show that nine years in a, is an absurd length of time <laughs> to follow people in a paper company. It's amazing yeah. the paper company was still in existence and in fact uh-huh. we saw them you know, have to start selling printers and things because paper was being phased out in the real world. like a paper company was a great choice as far as what is the most boring office we can come up with exactly a, a paper company but doing it in the digital age meant that even that had a lifespan i'm sure i mean i can still buy paper mm-hmm. for my printer i know there are still paper companies <laughs> but you know i bet there are not think you know multiple small branches and multiple smaller American cities I I don't (laughs) think that's happening anymore Um, but I I think although in some ways we're we're less aware of the documentary aspect and the crew in the British version I think there don't there aren't as many talking head segments for instance and it's not talked about as much but it's definitely happening because we see David Brent being interviewed we see that and I think we get we get more people doing their talking head segments we get more of that in the american the idea that this is a a documentary works Mm -hmm. a little better in the british office because it's such a short show interesting it's it's 12 episodes plus the christmas specials i can believe that a a paper company was followed long enough to create that (laughs) if that's you're saying in like a suspension of disbelief way the world within a world is what yes yeah i'm not saying that it doesn't work as a conceit for the show but it in, in the yeah. American version, but what I'm saying is 
there does come a point where I think, and I think this was probably again a choice on the on the part of the writers and NBC and everybody. Like, there's a point at which we have locked ourselves into this being a, a documentary. Like, that's the yeah. format of the show, and we just yeah. have to trust that we'll all keep going with it, that the audience will, that we'll all just accept that that's the show's format and not think too hard about the fact that a, a documentary crew would not follow these people for nine years. <laughs> yeah. But Even Michael come to, Moore doesn't do follow people around that long. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> Maybe that Boyhood movie, but that is not a oh, documentary, well, know, although right? it's sort of, but that, you know, this doesn't really, this would not happen. Um, and they, to the point that they yeah. start in the later seasons, they start to make jokes about it. We start to see Pam develop a bit of a friendship with one of the crew members. Like we start to uh, see the crew members on yeah. screen here and there um, because they come back to the fact that it's a documentary. Someone is now backing up a moving truck. I don't know. <laughs> I'm if sorry. The podcast is now in reverse. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Oh, I huh? think they found their parking spot. Nope. Nope. Here we go again. You jinxed it. <laughs> Oh, someday we'll have a studio. <laughs> Until yep. then, we make do. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to say um, earlier, and I think it kind of fits here too, that the the sort of docu-style fits better perhaps with the BBC version mm -hmm. because, and I'm thinking specifically of Martin Freeman, and, um, and I guess also Lucy Davis, like relative to their U.S. version counterparts, I observe them as playing much smaller. Mm -hmm. Like they're the the characters are sort of more realistic as people because they're not as charismatic as mm. as Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski are. Like they're just they're like Lucy Davis definitely is not performing in a, a, a very big way at all. Like so much of what her interactions with Ricky Gervais are are just sort of like these really small subtle movements. And like it's just the the whole tone of that. I don't know if I'm really expressing what I'm thinking. But no, like, you're right. The whole it's a different tone style. Of that series is such so smaller. Yeah, it's it's a different style for sure. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is just the difference between British television and American television. As as a no, person a who has point. consumed Absolutely. ridiculous amounts of both, <laughs> um, that's that's quite normal. Um, in terms of acting style and, and style of production. Um, yeah. So, for instance, if you watch, like, a British cop drama, if you watch something like Line of Duty, sure, and then you put that up against something like Law and Order, yeah. um, there's a very different style to it, and I think that is a, a cultural difference in no, acting and, and production. So you're right. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think that had had Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski and Steve Carell and Rain Wilson and everybody had they adopted the British acting style in the American office it would not have worked it would have seemed very weird yeah I think that's true um, yeah absolutely mm -hmm. but I, the other thing that I think sort of made me fall in love with the show in the first place is that like I don't know fuck it the, as, as a straight white male mm -hmm. the person I identify with most in the show is John Krasinski's character yes it would and be the fact that he is doing the most like takes to camera mm -hmm. and sort of like, I don't know whether it was written this way on purpose or whether it just sort of evolved because he's good at it, mm -hmm. but he is, he is involving the audience very directly. Yes, he is. In, for sure. And so like that idea of both, like that's the character I would be if I was in this world, mm -hmm. but also I want to be friends with that character. And so like in, in my, my weird experience of the show when it first started was like sort of being on his side against 
Dwight being on his side, crushing mm-hmm. on Jenna Fisher, like, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things, that's very much a, an entry point for me personally into mm-hmm. that show. And the docudrama format is like very central to my experience of that. Yeah, well, I think I think some of that is probably just what John Krasinski brought to the role. Yeah. I think that involvement of the audience, mm-hmm. I suspect that not all of that was written. I think a lot of his sort of little looks to... Yeah. I think some of that is him because it develops more and more as you go. And that, that looks to me, and I, I don't know because I wasn't in the room, but it looks to <laughs> me like a case of the writers writing to an actor's strengths. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, where is he well, my... Can I... mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you I was had a question. Say, I was I think I was going to ask what you're about to say, which is what was your experience? That's exactly of... what I was going to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you talked about him being your entry point. Yeah. And I think, I think it's human nature when we watch television to look for our sort of avatar, if you will, to look for the exactly. person we would be if we were in that show. Exactly. And I, I think mine was Pam. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's, had I been cast on that show in a, in another universe uh, yeah. where Jenna Fisher does not exist because she mm-hmm. was brilliant in that role and I would never want to replace <laughs> her. Um, but I think if I were going in to audition for that show, I expect I would have auditioned for Pam. Yeah. Um, and so that was also, you know, I've been a receptionist. <laughs> I've worn that exact boring outfit. Um, and I, that's not an insult. Jenna Fisher will be the first to tell you that when she went in for that role, she decided to look as boring as humanly possible. And that mm-hmm. is how they continued to dress her. But that, you know, button down shirt under the cardigan that was and her hairstyle that way. That was all her. That was yeah. that was her trying to look very boring. Um, and that, you know, like not to insult uh, receptionists everywhere because you guys are doing good work. Um, <laughs> so somebody has to deal with all the people who phone. And yeah, and many of them are not fun to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've, I've done that job. I've looked like that. I've been that person. <laughs> and, and she did a very good job of it. So I feel like that would have been my that was my entry point into it. I think that the documentary format worked really well i mean i think you have to remember it was groundbreaking at the time that was really the yeah. first modern show to do that and when the american office premiered here i had never seen the british version i saw that later me too so yeah. this was totally a new format to me that then got adopted you know parks and rec used it modern family uses it mm-hmm. um other shows have have it's become a more common sort of storytelling device yeah. um it's not it's not always my preference yeah like i don't know that modern family really needed that i think it was an interesting choice and i think it was something that was in style at the time that they started but it Mm -hmm. one of the issues with it is that if your show happens to be very successful which modern family is (laughs) uh and runs a long time that device gets ridiculous (laughs) yeah um yeah, but I, I did I did like it, and I still like it. I, I enjoy the way that we see those characters kind of involve the audience or look at us like, this is bonkers, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, and I do like that. I think that Jenna Fisher and Krasinski are the ones that sort of do that the most, but they're also maybe the characters that I noticed doing them the most. But like yeah. some of my favorite moments of each of them are still 
times where they're talking to the dock crew. Like, I can't remember mm. what it was about, but I remember Pam talking to the crew and saying, oh, if you guys see anything, tell yeah. me, <laughs> and we'll blah, 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 whatever the thing is. And so, like, really seeing the dock crew as sort of a part of the office, the show yeah. the show. <laughs> I think they acknowledge those uh, people more mm-hmm. often than anyone else does. And, and part of what's fun about that is that, of course, those people aren't there. There's no documentary crew. There's the normal yeah. crew, right? Like someone the, is setting yeah. up a camera and filming them. And but the the documentary crew that that we are to believe is there, of course, doesn't exist. It's just camera yes. angles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and actually, this might be a good place to sort of shout out. I'm, maybe we should have looked this up. But the actual camera operators who worked oh. on the NBC show The Operator, or the, the NBC show The <laughs> Office, those operators were very good at what they do because um, they are getting these shots. And, you know, I'm going to sound stupid here for a second because I don't know all the film school lingo. But, you know, you're focusing and you're panning and all you're zooming and all of that fun stuff. They're getting the reactions and they're finding the person in the room who's doing the interesting thing. And a lot of that goes through editing, obviously. But well, and I that's, do think that's that decided a lot to say. It's decided with blocking ahead of time too, because this is a single oh, camera show, mm-hmm. so it's. Um, I mean, but you, like all the filming through plants or through doors or windows or. Blinds oh yeah, or like, yeah. That's. I feel like the the show has such a distinctive look. That's your director and your DOP, mm-hmm. and yeah. and on television, often the look of a show is established by whoever directs the pilot. And then sure. it is maintained by the DOP because the, uh, I'm sorry, DOP is director of photography. That's oh, your, I knew that, but yeah, we should have said For that. the audience, <laughs> not for you, for the audience. That's your main, your main camera person, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. Um, sometimes they're called DP, sometimes they're called DOP, but it's director of photography. And that is the, the person who establishes the, the filming of everything. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're in charge of that. So even especially on television because the DOP tends to be consistent mm-hmm. at least within a season and often for the run of the show. Yeah. Um, and the director is not directors come and go and it's a new director every episode. So when a show has a look, that's probably the DOP. And as I talk, I am uh, vamping a little because I am in <laughs> fact scrolling through um, to find our cinematographers. Here we go. So if we want to shout these people out, sure. Matt Son, uh, S-O-H-N, Son or Son, mm-hmm. directed 98 episodes between 2006 and 2013. Wow. Randall Einhorn directed 48 episodes between 2005 and 2010. Sarah Levy did 10 episodes between 2011 and 2013. And Peter Smokler, or Smokler, not sure, did one <laughs> episode in 2005, and I'm willing to bet that was the pilot. So it was likely he who established the original look. Mm -hmm. And then these other three people maintained it. And I'm not going to read all the editors because there are so many of them. Um, (laughs) But, but yes, the, I think it is worth on a show like this, shouting out those people who, who established and maintained the look of the show. Cause that's such a big experience. Like, big part of my experience of a show like this but really every show is Mm -hmm. those sort of cinematography and all that all the people behind the camera who are maintaining the consistency of it so that you can say oh this episode feels like an Mm -hmm. episode of this show or this episode doesn't feel like an episode of this show or you know the the stuff that those of us who are uh, not professionals in this industry (laughs) would uh, respond to something as 
Well, there's also, um, I mean, when you know a show really well, mm-hmm. I always enjoyed, this is quite nerdy, but when I have <laughs> known a show, a show really, really well, I was sometimes able to tell you the director before knowing for sure. So, for instance, I can yeah. I can identify an episode of The X-Files that was uh, shot by Kim Manners or directed by Kim Manners <laughs> easily every time. I know what a Kim Manners episode looks like. Um, yeah. So as we talk about the DOPs, and I did say directors come and go, but all, directors also have their own styles. And if the same person frequently directs on the same show, often you can spot their style. Um, yeah. I can do yeah. that with some West Wing episodes too, with Alex Graves or Christopher Messiano or you, you can know, tell, right? Tommy Schlamy, you can tell because they like to do certain things. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. That that is really fascinating to uh, pick up on those like what consistent choices. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna confirm because I have now confirmed it that Peter Smokler <laughs> did. He was the DOP on the pilot. That was his ah, one there episode. Awesome. So there we go. Yes. Um, well, should we call out another quick segue here? Because we were going to talk about some of the other people who did behind the camera and in front of the camera, because there were a bunch of writers who were also cast members. Sure, go for it. Uh, BJ Novak, Nini mm-hmm. Kaling, and Paul yes. Lieberstein were the yes. three big ones that I had written down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that safe to say that Novak and Kaling were mostly launched by their involvement in the show. Oh, I think so, yeah. Particularly mm-hmm. Biddy Kaling. Um, yeah. because I think this was one of her very first jobs. Uh, I've read yeah. both her books, so I should know this. Um, but I believe this was her first writer's room. I believe. Um, that sounds somebody, correct to me, but somebody, I don't have please, that in front of me. Please write in and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> please, I'm Mindy sure Kaling, somebody out there... <laughs> not sp- listen, Mindy, if you're listening, <laughs> thank you. Big fan. I don't know why you're spending your time on this, um, but feel free to write in. But really, if any of our listeners happen to know this, if, if I'm incorrect, <laughs> please correct me. But I believe this was her first writer's room. And I think she kind of ended up on the show as a result of being a writer on it, that when they went to yeah. write this character, they just sort of, and she, not to say that she doesn't have acting training. She did all sorts of improv and stuff in university. She knew what she was doing. Yeah. Um, but I think it was also like, well, why would we cast this when, when Mindy could do a beautiful job of it? Why don't we just use who we have? Yeah. And in the first season, there are a lot of like miscellaneous background people that do not mm-hmm. become part of the ensemble. Like most right, of the people yeah. whose names we've already listed um, are, you know, from in the show from the very beginning. But there are like unnamed characters throughout that first mm-hmm. season. And yes. one of them is whatever character Mindy Kaling is playing, because I don't know if she's ever named. But the Kelly that we meet in season two is not the Kelly who is in the office on season one. Because there's the Diversity Day episode, which I think is episode 102 or 103, and Mm -hmm. that Mindy Kaling is just sort of like, for lack of a better term, sort of a normal average person. She doesn't have a lot of effect. Oh, the personality comes out later, yes. The personality, yeah. I see what you mean. I was like, but that was Mindy Kaling. That was the same Kelly Kapoor. But I see what you mean. Yeah, she was not a terribly developed character until later. But just like her personal style and everything, too. Like, when you Mm-hmm. jump into season two she is much more distinctive much more energetic you know the sort of pop culture referencing the way yes. she talks yeah, all yeah. of that stuff is, is she's a character she's a little generic in season one she's yes, there sort of but she's a little headed. generic mm-hmm. and she develops further i think mm-hmm. they they decided who that character would be a little later on and you see that sometimes yes. there mm-hmm. are, there are some i mean i there's 
I can think of one character in particular who I won't name, and it's not on The Office, but I could never figure out. She's only, she appears in exactly one season of a long-running show in the fir- mm-hmm. in its first season, and then she's gone. And uh-huh. I could never figure out if it was an actor problem or if it was a writer problem, but I never knew who that character was episode to episode. It's <laughs> like, what? Is, I, just, I felt like the writers didn't know what to do with her. I, I suspect, having seen some of her other work, that it was not an actor problem, but that it was the writers not really knowing what to do with her. And so she yeah. was very inconsistent. It was confusing. Um, and if they'd kept yeah, that, that actor happen. around, she might have. they might have hit some kind of stride, but that didn't happen. She ended up getting replaced. Um, so it's it's interesting to see when they do keep that person around and develop yeah. an actual character around them what happens because I think Kelly is one of the most memorable characters on the office. She's absolutely. nuts, and, but she's and fun. The thing, absolutely. The thing that I love most about the relationship that she has with Ryan is that a lot of the episodes that are focused on the two of them are written mm-hmm. by either Mindy or BJ Novak. Yes. And so they are the ones sort of pushing forward the ridiculousness of that relationship. And yes. I, I just like the, I don't know this for a fact, but the implication that these people both enjoy writing and acting together mm-hmm. and are having fun at work. Oh, that's, that's true. And they're friends going back before the office. They knew each other before the office. Okay, I didn't remember that. That's interesting. Um, and they actually went on to create Mindy's next show, The Mindy Project. He worked on that too? I forgot. About uh, that. I believe so. I believe they left at the same time, and I think they both worked on that. I, again, I could be wrong. You talk, mm-hmm. I'll IMDb it. Um. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they, they did leave and come back and leave and come back, both of them a little bit. They're both in the uh, finale as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they're both authors. I have all of their books, but have not gotten to any of them, unfortunately, because I just have too many GD books around. <laughs> uh, but, you know, brilliant, amazing, comedic people. And obviously, Mindy's having a really big film career as well. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie that she just did with uh, Emma Thompson? Late Night? Oh, yes, I certainly have. Everybody needs to go <laughs> and see it immediately. It's it's really good. I I loved it. I had so much fun. My friend Alex and I went... And we had the best time. Awesome. Um, yeah, we had we had an amazing time. We both of us just sat there the whole time, going, "This this movie is amazing. This is everything. <laughs> I can't believe finally somebody made like Emma Thompson is incredible, and Mindy Kaling did such a great job writing and acting. Like it just yes, go go see it. And at the risk of sounding sexist, especially if you're a woman, go see it. It'll be so satisfying. <laughs> I promise you, you'll love it. We hardly ever get movies like this about us. Go, go see it. <laughs> um, still, great. still trying to confirm B.J. Novak as creator of the Mindy Project. <laughs> um, but I Why believe he it? was part. He's certainly credited on it. Um, okay. He was an executive producer and a consulting producer from 2012 to 2014. So it looks like he started out with the show in 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, and may have moved on after the first couple of years, but yes, he well, was. Well, didn't they move platforms or something? Like, didn't that show get canceled and picked up somewhere else? Fox canceled them and Hulu picked them up. But interestingly, mm-hmm. in Canada, for oh. us, there was no change because oh, right. <laughs> there's usually a Canadian um, network that, like, an, sort of an affiliate situation. So if something runs on Fox in Canada, mm-hmm. it yeah. runs on Fox. But it also tends to be simulcast. Like we we get Fox, we have a channel that is Fox. But then mm-hmm. we will also have we have our own networks, and one of them typically has bought almost any big American show. Not every show, but most. And so yeah. it will simulcast on the Canadian network. So in Canada, the Mindy Project ran 
on uh, a network called City TV. Now, it also ran on Fox at the exact same time. <laughs> and what tends to happen, though, is that the City TV will take over the Fox one so that if you are trying to watch it on the American channel, you will still get the Canadian commercials. So <laughs> it's a real problem because sometimes we like your American commercials. Um, but so it, it ran on City TV in Canada. And, and so when Fox canceled it and then Hulu picked it up, City TV, because there is no Hulu in Canada, we don't have <laughs> access to it. Uh, City TV made the same deal with Hulu that they had made. <laughs> With Fox, so the Canadian rights, or maybe not, I guess with Hulu, or with the studio, the Canadian rights stayed with CTV, or City TV. CTV is a different network. I don't know why they have to sound so, we have the CBC, CTV, City TV, and Global. M-O-U-S-E. No, Global. Global's okay. Global sounds different, at least. Uh, but City TV continued to air it, so for us, it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> like, there was a brief moment of like, oh, what will happen to it in Canada, because we don't get Hulu. And then City TV almost immediately was like, it's okay. We bought the rights. It's fine. We're going to keep airing it. Don't worry, Canadians. You will still get your show. And they did. We have your continuity of Kaling plan in place. Exactly. Like, it's a, we made sure it's going to be fine. We know you don't get Hulu. It's fine. <laughs> it's not fine. We would like Hulu. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess the other person that uh, was behind the camera and in front of the camera is a uh, good old cousin Mose. Oh, Mike sure. <laughs> <laughs> Who has maybe the weirdest run in television, which I seem to remember him being asked about on the Good Place the podcast, and is apparently just him. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that was that was weird. So, in, so strange. Yeah, cousin Mose is bizarre. <laughs> I mean, if you think Dwight is weird and then you meet his cousin, you're like, oh, oh, Dwight is the normal shrewd. Mm -hmm. That is something. <laughs> He's Bears the normal one. <laughs> beats Battlestar Galactica. That's right. One of my favorite Dwight Schrute moments, indeed. Also, yeah, the time that he prank. they put him in charge of the party planning committee and he got gray <laughs> balloons. It is your birthday. Yes. <laughs> Just a banner printed off the computer. It is your birthday. With a statement. Here's some gray balloons. The, <laughs> the other great Dwight moment slash prank moment was, uh, I think, from the final season. And it's the one where Randall Park is pretending to be Jim. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and I've always Randall been an Asian man. What's wrong with you? <laughs> good, good for you for not seeing race, Dwight. And they cut to the picture of Jenna and Randall and yes. their two kids on the yes. desk. And it's a it very elaborate so prank. Perfect. <laughs> it is maybe like the most elaborate. Yeah, that was pretty fantastic. Like nine years in. Oh, you just now noticed I'm Asian? Because <laughs> it, it almost has the thing of like making you question it yourself as the viewer. I did not question myself. I, I was aware of the difference between John Krasinski and Randall Park. But the picture on his desk. Damn yeah. it, Stevie. Photoshop. Uh, yeah, Actually, no, no, more like likely a, a photo shoot. Guess is it was an actual production thing yeah. they did. Which, by the way, to completely unrelated to anything, not mm. enough very expensive movies do original pictures like that for like mm -hmm. your character's mantelpieces. There is so much shitty CGI 
or like shitty photoshopping i should say of those kinds of like robert de niro standing next to like you know what you can just get these people to stand still for five minutes and take a new photograph you don't have to you know cut somebody's head out of a magazine like fucking us weekly like i mean i think it depends a hundred million dollar movie i think it depends on um how much time you have that actor for and what you need to get done also there's a difference like if if the person is in the movie Mm -hmm. like sometimes you'll see there's a series of shots in in parks and rec of like less leslie nope with hillary clinton or you know you see them with and it's like if you can get that person to come and take a photo yeah, great. Absolutely. But sometimes you can't, and you need to say, "Oh, this character met Barack Obama," and so you have to take a picture of the person and get a picture of Obama and Photoshop them together. I think the other time that it sometimes looks awkward is uh, when they're trying to do a family photo because if you have yeah. established actors, mm-hmm. there's a point at which, like, sometimes you can get away with casting people who sort of look like them. <laughs> and sometimes you can't. So sometimes you're taking somebody's actual childhood photo. Yes. And then trying to manipulate it so that the parents are the parents in the show. That if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think sometimes those work better than other times. And some, yeah. I, I always liked what Gilmore Girls did, where mm-hmm. they did they did use actual photos of Lauren Graham as a child and photos of Alexis Bledel as a child, but they tended to be alone in those photos. Yeah. And then the big photo of Lorelai with her parents, with Ed Herman and um, Kelly Bishop, was a painting. Mm-hmm. So oh, they had somebody do a painting of Ed Herman and Kelly Bishop, clearly Ed Herman and, and Kelly Bishop, and then probably what Lauren Graham looked like as an 11-year-old. Yeah. You know, like they probably took a picture of her when she was a little girl and said, paint this girl sitting between these people as younger versions of themselves and that's yeah. our family photo. And that made sense to me because you can't... The best you could do would be to take Kelly Bishop and Ed Herman and then cast a little girl who looked enough like Lauren Graham and put yeah. them together. But now you have the problem that the parents haven't aged in 30 years. And that's confusing. <laughs> or they were always this old? Like what these kind are of Dorian people, Gray is this? Yeah. Like, these people are <laughs> clearly in their 60s and were clearly in their 60s 30 years ago. What is up? So, yeah, I guess yeah. really the biggest bone that I have to pick is just that the Photoshop that looks terrible because you make very good points about scheduling and availability and all that stuff for the actors yeah. taking new photos. But like, I think the thing that makes me rant about this today mm-hmm. is I was just watching a uh, yeah. Red I feel Redford like you've seen movie. something recently where it was bad. <laughs> well, the opposite actually. I was watching oh. a Red, Red Robert Redford movie called Lions for Lambs. Oh yeah, you know that was a movie. while ago. Yeah, Meryl Streep and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Redford, of course, and a bunch yep. of other people, but Tom Cruise plays mm-hmm. the senator in that movie. <laughs> and so in his Senate office, he's got pictures of his character with Condi Rice and uh, Colin Powell and George W. Bush and all of mm-hmm. these people. And the Photoshop is really, really good. Mm. Like, they just, they look like very spectacular Photoshops because mm-hmm. I doubt that he actually went and took pictures with all those people, although he definitely could have. I mean, there might um, be existing pictures of Tom Cruise with those people. Absolutely. But it looked like very good Photoshop because it was him like in costume, like wearing the same suit almost as he's wearing in the scene. And with like, you know, the sort of politician parted hair that every stock politician has going Mm -hmm. back for 45 years. Um, White male politician, I should clarify. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it just sort of struck me like, wow, these look really good. 
why doesn't everyone spend whatever it takes to get you know a 22 year old who knows how to use photoshop to make really good pictures like this budgets <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, it budgets. No, of course. <laughs> but let's get back to what we we're talking about. <laughs> yes, because we're we're starting to to run fairly long, so we probably want to wrap this up pretty soon. Okay. Uh, do you have any any more thoughts on the office that you need to get in? I do. I have so many thoughts that I need to get in. Um, well, well, pick your top thoughts. <laughs> top thoughts. Number five. <laughs> this is a new segment that we're calling Top Thoughts with Christopher Royce. <laughs> that is such a setup, and I do not have anything to follow it with. God damn it. Um, looking at my notes from <laughs> earlier, um, trying to think. Obviously, like, big thematic things. Obviously, we talk a lot about families of choice on the show. Mm -hmm. I think we probably touched on it earlier today, and I think that that's I'm sure we did. always a really fun, powerful thing to play with. Um, and uh, I don't know what else I really want to talk about now that you've thrown to me to put me on the spot. You said you had a lot of thoughts. I do, but I don't have them like properly organized in a list. Um, oh. The I'm trying to think. The other thing I had wanted to talk about, but you didn't finish the Christmas special, is that the the UK version they kind of gave it somewhat of a happy ending, sort mm -hmm. of. I don't mind and if so, you spoil that for me. Well, it's not the spoiling of it is so much as like the talking of what did you think about it. Oh <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I ran out of time. No, that's totally fine. I can only I watch so like... much television. Here, here's what happened, listener. Chris knows this. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, I, I was very kindly gifted tickets to see a replay of Benedict Cumberbatch doing Hamlet, which was originally done <laughs> in 2015 in a theater in London, and they filmed the stage production and broadcast it into theaters. I did not do the math to realize that that <laughs> would be about four hours long. It was a great production. Uh, but it, I just was, and I know Hamlet, I should have known how long it would be. And I just, I did not realize how much of my day that was going to take up. <laughs> and I, I very much enjoyed it. And thank you very much, David, for the tickets. I had a great time and I was mystified by the costume design. Um, <laughs> but it, it, my movie watching time cut into my TV watching time. <laughs> and so what a I, drag. <laughs> I ran out of time to finish the office. That is what happened. <laughs> okay. While you were telling the story, I've thought of something to ask you. Fantastic. Let's do it. You talked about the Jenna Fisher character being sort of your entry point to mm -hmm. use that phrase again. What do you think about her subplot of being an artist stuck in a day job? Because that's the thing that we talk about a ton. Of course I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, which might be part of why she's my entry point um i think that was actually a really realistic thing for them to do i don't i could be wrong but i don't think that the lucy davis version of this character has that i don't think that's a thing for dawn i feel like she had and i just watched it so i should remember more but it's just uh -huh. how short that series is yeah maybe I that's do feel why like she had something okay sort of that the Beasley characteristic was built out of, but I don't mm -hmm. remember if it was specifically art okay. or illustration or graphic design. Okay. Uh, no, now that I think about it, Tim gave her a gift, I think, in the Christmas special or in the end of season two, mm -hmm. series two, which was like pencils or paints or something. So okay, maybe, maybe was she did. more specific. So, uh, and I, I find that, I find the Dawn character sadly. And this is not a, a slam on Lucy Davis. It's not a slam on no, anyone, definitely. but definitely yeah. not Lucy Davis. But I find the the character is underdeveloped for the simple 
point that she yeah. doesn't she doesn't get nearly as much screen time as the men so we don't know nearly as much about her so if if that did come on screen if that if that is her background yeah. as that character then i did not remember and i apologize mm. for that but yeah i think it's a very realistic thing i think um I mean, you've given me a lovely opening to talk about my own show, Honestly Charlotte, which is all about <laughs> being an artist, having a day job. And I, one of the reasons we did that is because I think that um, there are more people doing that than we ever think about. Absolutely. I, I think, I know, the truth is most creative people, most writers, most actors, most artists have day jobs. Most yeah. people don't make a living at the creative thing they do no matter how good they are at it or how much they love it it is the yeah. minority that gets to make a career and the reality of life is that the rest of us have to make a living somehow and so pam somebody who what's interesting about pam is that she doesn't she didn't go to art school originally she does that in yeah. the course of the series but it's clearly something she's always liked and wanted to do and then tries to pursue and it doesn't always go well um, yeah. She has that gallery opening that people don't come to, and the people who do come to sort of diss her art with her standing right there, which is very hard to watch. Um, yeah. But then Michael sort of makes it better by buying one of her, because she's drawn the building that their office is in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's I like, like well, that. we have to have this for the office. And he buys it and frames it and puts it up in the office where it remains for the rest of the series run, which is wonderful. Um, yeah. So, and it's like you see it all the time like it just becomes part of the furniture of the office but it's there um, so yeah I think that's that might be part of what I responded to in Pam as well that she is a creative yeah, always, with a day job yeah I always felt for her that she was like doing her art sort of semi-publicly within the office environment because I personally do not share any of the creative stuff I do with the people that I work with and so the idea that she is sort of like being judged by the people she has to see every day mm. and sort of evaluating yeah. her worth as a creative person like the only, there's only a couple of times where that really pans out positively and I feel mm -hmm. like the rest of it is sort of neutral at best because she does the digital animation for the commercial that they make yeah. and then she does the big um, like panorama mm -hmm. in the warehouse yeah um, they have her do a mural in the, the later mural, seasons yeah, towards yeah. the end of it um, but for a lot of it it's sort of like this kind of reaffirms why I don't tell people that I'm a novelist when I go to work <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's sort of I mean now that you bring it up I wonder if if she was a subconscious influence on Honestly Charlotte. Um, it certainly wasn't conscious, but when I think about it, and like we had Charlotte do things like, you know, doing art around the office. And yeah. we certainly allude to it. And listener, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the show. It's, <laughs> it's free. It's free. You can watch it on the internet. Um, just Google Honestly Charlotte. We come right up. But we... <laughs> We had Charlotte doing things like drawing elaborate signs to stick on the fridge because somebody keeps taking her lunch and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so I wonder, like, it, it never occurred to me before, but I wonder... And, of course, The Office had been off the air for several years by the time we even wrote it. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if maybe subconsciously some Pam Beasley got in there. I don't know. Ooh. There are no, no storylines that overlap or anything, but I, I wonder. Or certainly it's not... Like I yeah. said, it's not it's not an uncommon thing. I think those people are those people i'm one of them they're all <laughs> they're too. all around you artists are all around you creative people there's, there's right probably behind one you right now. behind you right now indeed um <laughs> <laughs> we're everywhere doing art in the shadows um but i also sort of like that's 
one of the things that I identify with most in addition to the sort of Jim not caring about his job and like right now this is a job but if I advance any higher in this company it'll become a mm-hmm. career like yep. that sort of attitude that he has in the first couple seasons and yet like, he does not have a better plan nope like we don't at that we have no idea what Jim's ambition might be and I think that's because he doesn't know yeah exactly yeah. oh and that's the other question uh you easy to look up how old Jenna and yeah. Krasinski are how old do you think those characters are supposed to be when that show opens? Because that's the thing that I sort of go back and forth on. Seems mm. like they both went to four years of college. They've both been in this job for about three, four years. I feel like are Pam's... Are they in their late 20s? I feel like Pam's about 27, without yeah. looking it up. Um, I don't know if we know she went to a four-year college. I, I think she mentions that. Does she? But I can't remember that, specific I mean, that makes of the fact of, of her being a receptionist even more depressing. And yet even more realistic. Like, with a degree, you should be able to get a better job than that. Yeah. And yet, you can't. Um, And again, no disrespect to receptionists. I've been one. I was one with a degree. (laughs) I'm just saying, wouldn't it be nice if having a degree meant you got to do more than answer the phone? Um. Well, and also filming a show like that, or pardon me, setting a show like that in Scranton, PA, Mm -hmm. like, the cost of living is so much different compared to where we live. I would imagine, yes. (laughs) You could could get a job as, like, a receptionist and live on your own and be fairly comfortable as opposed to a, you know, $40,000 a year job in the Bay Area. Right, yes, if you're making 40 grand in Scranton, you're probably doing okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, I mean, as you said, very easy to look up and see how old the actors are, and that, I think, would inform oh, it. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a quick look and say that Jenna Fisher is... I think she was about 30 when she started. She's she's 45 now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so she's 30, 31 when she started. Yeah. Yeah. 14 years ago, and, and she's had her birthday this year. Um, and Krasinski, I feel like, is just a few years older than me, so maybe a couple years um, younger than Jenna. I don't know. I keep some of this stuff in my head in very vague ways. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I IMDb will tell us. <laughs> I do this moment, annoying please? thing while you're looking stuff up. I do this annoying thing where I remember people's birth years rather than their ages, because John... ages change and birth years don't. John Krasinski was born in 1979. He has not had ha. his birthday this year, so he is currently 39. Yeah, so he, that's a he will be 40 big, in October. Pretty big so age difference for characters who are supposed to be just about the same age is my interpretation, but I don't know. Five it years? never comes up on the show. I don't think the characters are meant to have an age difference. I don't. That's I what mean, I'm saying. Yeah, I don't, yeah. and I don't think five years is is very much. Like Jenna just turned 45. Yeah, spring. No, I'm, so she would have been, th- let's say, 31, 30, 31 when she got the part. So if she's playing down to 27, that's not much. No, um, that's not that crazy. That's negligible. Three years is. And he's yeah. he certainly doesn't didn't. I didn't think she looked older than he did. Like, I would have I would no, have until way. until this moment when I looked up their birthdays, I would have told you they were the same age. Yeah. And I I would have assumed that they were both a couple years older than me, which Jenna is. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Krasinski, depressingly year and a half younger than me (laughs) (laughs) always depressing I would say though if you put me next to him and said who's older most people would guess him so ha he's definitely taller (laughs) he is taller I'll give him that (laughs) 
Um, I, I love yeah, you, John I Krasinski. Kind of... <laughs> I truly do. I thought A Quiet Place was wonderful. Please keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> they just started filming on the sequel to that. I know. I saw a post somewhere. Uh, and Jenna Fisher, if anybody's not following her on Instagram, she's uh, turning into quite the baker. So that's a, oh, fun, yes. a fun show you can watch is Jenna's experiments in the kitchen. <laughs> Jen, Jenna likes to make bread, as do I. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I enjoy watching her bread making. Will Wheaton also at least used yes. to do quite a lot of bread making. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I am encouraged by the celebrity bread makers. <laughs> <laughs> because, first of all, bread is not evil. <laughs> we all need to watch our carbs a little, but it's okay to eat some bread. Um, <laughs> and uh, also, a lot of them are no better at it than I am. So. <laughs> well, I'm going <laughs> to... Yes, you are... You are an excellent baker and soon Why, we have you. to be in the same place again so we can make things for each other rather than just that's true talk. you've 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 not actually had my bread and um, vice versa that's true um but uh i feel like we're we're drifting in and out of our subject matter is there we totally are you have on your list on our new segment called stevie gets her comeuppance <laughs> from five minutes ago <laughs> uh i feel like i've covered everything i wanted to cover i'm quite comfortable Okay, I will well say then... my one of one of my I, I will give you two favorite little bits of information about the office that I have. Hit me. Okay. Uh, number one favorite is just a a fact within the world of the show that has always greatly amused me. But the fact that oh, sure. Michael Scott had that world's best boss uh, world's best boss mug that he bought himself. Yep, that was great. I always thought was fantastic. My other favorite. Uh, fact about the office that I think is just very sweet is the in in the episode called Goodbye Michael in which mm-hmm. Michael Scott leaves Scranton and Steve Carell leaves the show there's a scene toward the end um, where Pam has sort of gone off on an errand and couldn't do what she was going to do and for the one time in her life instead of going back to work like she should she goes she plays hooky and she goes to the movies and she misses uh-huh. Michael's farewell in the office, so she has to catch up with him at the airport, which oh, she right, just right, right. she just manages to do and catch him uh-huh. at the airport and say goodbye. As that happens, right before that happens, uh, Michael says his final goodbyes to the crew. He takes off his microphone and gives it to them. Yep. And Pam, because she wasn't in the office, presumably, is not mic'd at the time. So what we see is her running up to him and them having a conversation that we don't hear where they say goodbye. Yeah. As it turns out, that was their last scene together. And that yeah. scene, because it's off mic, is actually Jenna Fisher and Steve Carell saying goodbye to each other. Yeah. So it That's is nice. It's very real and I think very sweet. Aw. Aw. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. That's right. Uh, cue the music. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our conversation about the offices, <laughs> both, both of them. 
<laughs> and all their their myriad fascinating <laughs> elements. Um, I will say that I'm I'm embarrassed, surprised at, at me and us for somehow going that whole hour plus segment without mentioning Rashida Jones, Ellie Kemper, or Craig Robinson, who are all amazing in that show. We are, but there's terrible. just so much to talk about. <laughs> We're awful. Um, yes, actually, Rashida Jones had such a short run on The Office, too. She was only there for a season. And I, I yeah. think that's why I forgot about her, because I identify her so much more strongly with Parks and Rec. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she may have even left to do Parks. I mean, I'm not sure how the timeline I works out on that. I am quite sure that's true. Not 100%, but quite <laughs> sure. Which uh, sort of maybe lends... Uh, credence to our theory that all the Mike Schur shows exist in the same universe. They're all connected. <laughs> um, what uh, what are we doing now? Let's let's talk about. I'm looking at my notes and vamping mm-hmm. because this is how I podcast people. This is the show you're listening to. Well, normally what we do at this point is we each share an organization that we think is uh, worthy of people's time and or money and or attention, and then we uh, plug our various creative endeavors. Absolutely. Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. <laughs> um, so we, we've started this thing in the last few months, and, and no one has told us to stop yet, so we're still doing it, uh, <laughs> where we each uh, pick an organization that we think is doing good work, and we try to highlight them and what they're doing and encourage people, if they are so inclined, to maybe throw them some dollars of the Canadian or American variety. Um so or this whatever month, your local currency happens to be. Whatever, whatever. Well, you if if you don't live in one of those <laughs> countries or Australia, you probably don't have dollars, but you know what we mean. Um so uh I this month I would like to talk very briefly about an organization that I believe the name is pronounced Races. Mm-hmm. Um that stands for Refugee Aid uh sorry, Refugee and now, see, I got off the page that said what it stood for, and I thought I knew it, <laughs> and now I have to go back. Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. Boom. That's what they are called. Um, they're based in Texas. They're actually known as Racist Texas. Um, they are a nonprofit agency that promotes justice by providing free and low-cost legal services to underserved immigrant children, families, and refugees. They've been around since 1986. Uh, It was a grassroots movement started by community activists, and it's grown to be the largest immigration legal service provider in Texas. Um, They have offices in a bunch of cities. So if you're in Texas, there's probably one near you. Austin, (laughs) Corpus Christi, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio. Um, One thing they're very involved in right now is the family separations going on at the southern border of the United States and trying to advocate for those families and children and get them back together. So... If, like me, you are horrified by what is going on at the southern border these days, uh, maybe throw them some money. They are www.racistexas.org. So that's R-A-I-C-E-S, Texas.org. Chris, what is your charity of choice this month? Well, the organization that I wanted to shine a light on here real quick is also sort of in that social justice category, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Witness to Innocence, or mm-hmm. WTI. They're based out of Philadelphia, and they're dedicated to abolishing the death penalty here in the awesome. U.S. And yes, we are both enthusiastic about that. Mm-hmm. I think that this is one of those issues that was used as sort of like a debate qualifier, or not qualifier, but a subject when mm-hmm. I was in high school. And so it used to be like a pro-con thing. And you talk about, you know, 
the you know does it work as a deterrent or you know what do you do with these appeals or you know all these sort of processes but the I think there's a lot of academic abstractions and you lose sight of the real lives of the people who get caught up in this. And the reason that's important is because we don't have the best track record as a country of making sure that if we're going to kill people, they actually did it. True. So I mean, <laughs> I, I would argue that even if they killed people, killing them serves absolutely no purpose, but that's my yes. personal opinion. Very, very anti-death penalty. Please continue. Yes. The morality argument, I think you and I would agree on, but mm -hmm. that's sort of a separate issue when you talk about having people imprisoned unjustly, which is another thing we do a lot in the mm -hmm. States. And so organizations like WTI um, are sort of dedicated to freeing people if possible. Um, Witness to Innocence works to end the death penalty by bringing to light the crisis of wrongful convictions and death sentencing in the United States. Um, they do a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support, and they're composed of exonerated former death row prisoners and their families and wow. loved ones. And so this is a group for whom this issue is, I mean, it couldn't possibly be more personal. Mm. And one of the reasons why it stayed with me for a while is because and it seems like a small thing, but when I get correspondence from them, it is often handwritten and mm. not just like in a type font, but you know, like you can run your thumb over the edge of the paper and feel where the pen made an indentation. Like I haven't ever spoken to anyone who works for this organization, but I know that they're there and I know that they care. And that's an unfortunate rhyme, but still. Yeah. Please go to witnessedinnocence.org for more information. So uh, let's do our personal plugs. Uh, Stevie, what do you have going on that the people should know about? Um, well, I always have Honestly Charlotte going on that you the people do. should know about. Um, please go watch the show. Please uh, share the show with other people. We could, honestly, we could use more views. Um, it's at honestlycharlotte.com, or if you prefer, you can just go and search for it on YouTube. It'll come right up. Um, or, you know, youtube.com slash honestlycharlotte. Uh, we're also on Vimeo. We're all over the internet, and we uh, want so badly to make you laugh for just under an hour. So, uh, if but no longer, but no longer, you seriously, you can binge the entire series, including the pilot, in just under an hour. So, we encourage you to do that. Uh, cross your fingers for us. I will report back on the outcome of the festival awards situation uh, probably in our October episode because I won't know until later in September. Um, and then you can find me on all the uh, social meds. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Stevie KJ. Chris is shaking his head at me because I said social meds. I do. Um, I'm I've I've got a an actor Facebook page which is facebook.com slash Ms Stevie Jackson. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, just Stevie Jackson was taken, so I had to add <laughs> the Ms. Um, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, and then Honestly Charlotte has its own presence uh, on all those things. It is at Honestly Charlotte on Instagram. It is Facebook.com slash Honestly Charlotte. It is at Honest Charlotte on Twitter because apparently the LY made it too many characters. So <laughs> follow all of those things and, and tell your friends and I'll let you know when I'm doing something new. Chris, what are your plugs? Uh, my website is ChristopherRoyce.com. Social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at ChrisMRoyce. And all over my website is stuff that I've written, uh, articles, and my weird Star Wars novel that I still have, like, this weird, cringy, apologetic sense 
of, which I should really address in therapy. <laughs> I hear myself like saying it in a weird voice. It's called Redux of the Jedi. It's a Star Wars novel that's completely free because I don't own the IP. It is unlicensed and unauthorized and uh, I think very good. <laughs> so why don't you well, read it? Well, maybe go read it, people. <laughs> and decide for yourself if it's any good. <laughs> well, you wait for the epic to which Chris alludes every month that he's currently writing. We're going to be on episode like 100 by the time I have any of that to share. It's pathetic. Right. So that could take a while. So go read the thing that he has actually put out into the world while you it's wait. It's 72,400 words. It's It'll not tide you long over. of a novel. <laughs> You've got time. Absolutely. <laughs> Certainly on my current schedule. <laughs> And speaking of scheduling, we're going to be back next month with another episode. That's right. We will talk to you then. Bye. Bye. The Talent Crush Chat Show podcast is written, edited, and produced by Christopher Royce and Stevie Jackson. Show notes, social media links, and more can be found at talentcrushchatshow.tumblr.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to help more people discover the show. If you want us to give you some unreliable advice, send us an email at talentcrushchatshow at gmail.com.